Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. We have many different systems across the country. They don't coordinate very well. People are doubling down on creating those walls and barriers instead of breaking those down. Dr. Ali Fontaine, who is the new president of the Canadian Medical Association, as we've been talking about healthcare in uh, Canada. And we decided to make it a two-parter this weekend, talk about, first of all, the public sector, and introduce the possibility of uh, more private healthcare being becoming part of our healthcare equation. Certain provinces are, are wanting that. Ontario is saying, although they're not very clear about it, the Ontario government considering increasing publicly funded surgeries at private facilities and considering options for more healthcare delivery at, quote, independent health facilities. But what kinds of surgeries and what private facilities or types of facilities may be engaged? Mr. Ford isn't talking about that. and He doesn't talk to me anymore, so... That's okay. But let's talk to someone who understands the uh, private health reality in this country. As a former member of the, or at least former president of the Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Brian Day is the founder of the Camby Surgery Center in Vancouver. We spoke with Dr. Day last after the BC Court of Appeals just weeks ago ruled against Dr. Day's private health care surgery center. Next stop, the Supreme Court of Canada. Who knows? And you have to remember in Quebec, it's always different in Quebec. I have an election coming up. And by the way, it's Premier Legault, not Premier Lego. It's two different things. <laughs> it's not Premier Lego. It's Premier Legault, for whatever that's worth. But in Quebec, if you do not receive timely public health care, you, first of all, you're entitled by private uh, health care coverage. And if you don't receive timely public care, you can go for private care and have that paid for by the insurance company you bought the policy from. But that only works in Quebec. It's only for Quebec. It's not for the rest of us. And that's because if a guy, a man by the name of Shauli, took it to court in Quebec, wouldn't back off, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. The Supreme Court said, yeah, that makes sense, but only for Quebec. Dr. Day, how are you? I'm fine, thanks, sorry. So how does your system at Camby Surgery Center operate, pun intended? What, what, do, what do you do? How do people pay? Clearly you're popular. Well, there are many groups who are exempted under the, under the law. So one of the strange things, and, and Dr. LaFontaine alluded to this, is we have 14, um, 14 health systems in Canada, and... And once you cross the provincial border, you are like a foreigner. So, so for so for instance, this this um, last Thursday, I operated on uh, two patients from Alberta um, and one patient from Manitoba. They are they have rights within another province that the residents of that province don't have. And and so this is a very strange. Um, Thing. And then a lot of people talk about the Canadian health system. There is no such thing. It's uh, multiple health systems. And going along with that multiple health systems um, is, the fact, is the fact that it's, it becomes very inefficient. But the other groups are federal employees, um, like judges and senators are exempt, and um, workers' compensation, patients injured at work are exempt. So they're, they're probably the single 
uh, commonest type of patient we treat. And, um, and funnily enough, federal prisoners um, are exempt. So there are, you know, one of the things we say is our case is really about fighting for the rights of Canadians who are not in jail to have the same rights as those who are in jail. Yeah, they're not prisoners, they're clients. When you go, when you go to prison, they give you a little blue book and it says you're a client. I, I had one of those books, not because I was a, a resident, but I was on the advisory committee for a former public safety minister of Canada for Correctional Service Canada. All sounds an interesting client. Um, what is the state, what is the health of our public health care system? Well, I think anyone who listens to any news program or reads any newspaper these days is very uh, very much aware that not only is it not working for what are called scheduled surgeries like you know you need a hip replacement or you can't you're on crutches because you've injured your knee or you can't work because your shoulders but 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 also people are, are you know suffering from uh, cancers that are not being treated in a timely manner and you know there's a study out um, recently that showed in, in last year over 11,500 um, Canadians died on public wait lists. And that is, um, you know, that is just unacceptable. Um, but it's the reality. And the, the worst part uh, to me is that in a free and democratic society, those patients are forced to be on that wait list because, um, as you say, with the exception of Quebec, um, it's against the law for them to do what other what visitors do. And, and so... This is, um, to me, it's important to understand, too, that Canada is the only country in the world where um, it's unlawful to obtain private health insurance unless you live in Quebec. So we have jurisdictions across the country where private insurance is just ruled illegal, and there is no country, communist, authoritarian, or any other, that has similar similar laws. Why, I'm, I'm trying to put two questions together here. Maybe I'll separate them. What would you want to see? How would um, Dr. Brian Day and the Canby Surgery Center uh, being able to operate and, uh, and, and do business and take care of patients and equivalencies in other parts of the uh, of the country operate and do business and take care of patients how would that model work? I guess what, what I'm getting at here is part B of this. How do you do away with the, oh, all they're trying to do is destroy health care, and they're trying to make sure that those who can afford it get health care, and those who can't are left out? How, what's the counter-argument? How do you sell that? Well, the counter-argument is simply to look at the data from the Canadian Institute for Health Information, which is a federal body, and the Commonwealth Fund. And they, they rank in 10 developed countries like you know, countries like Germany and France and Switzerland and 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 Canada in in that grouping of ten countries that have universal health care and ranks last in in um, access. It ranks last, funnily enough, in equity. In other words, it's the, the, the and 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 yet it's the most expensive. Um, so, as I say, if if you know, if you had if you were a hockey if you were a hockey fan and your team or a soccer fan, your team was at the bottom of a 10-team ten, ten um, table, 
wouldn't you be looking at what the top two or three teams do rather than keep saying, oh, well, you know, we've got this wonderful system. It's just, uh, well, let's just put more money into it. So I think there are three, three things that need to happen. One is, as they have in Quebec, a care guarantee. So if you wait beyond a certain um, time that's based on the benchmarks, there's a guarantee that you will be sent somewhere else, public, private, or whatever. And the other thing that's made a major um, it would have a major impact, and we're the only developed country that funds our hospitals with a global annual block funding, so that every patient that goes to a hospital, including an emergency department, is looked upon by the chief financial officer as a loss. <clears throat> Whereas in, in other countries, so in Britain, for instance, when a patient goes to the emergency or goes in for surgery, the public system pays the hospital. So we have that's this is called an internal market. Uh, patient-focused funding where the money follows the patient. That's number two. And number three is surely if a government um, is not... The government is under a constitutional um, requirement to provide timely access. If it doesn't, surely they can't sentence you to stay on a wait list with no way out um, unless you leave leave your your home province. And this makes... You know, it just makes no sense. And those are just the three things that need to be done, in my opinion. Yeah, we have hundreds of thousands of surgeries that have been postponed. Hundreds of thousands of surgeries. I don't know how you ever catch up with a system that is constantly falling behind. But hundreds of thousands of surgeries, and as you pointed out, cancer and heart disease, um, not diagnosed in time, people dying on wait lists, 11,000 plus Canadians dying on wait lists. That is absolutely unacceptable. And when you talk about the care guarantee that exists in Quebec and the Supreme Court of Canada enshrined that, for Quebecers, the Canadian Medical Association, I pointed this out to Dr. Lafontaine yesterday, the Canadian Medical Association in 2005 adopted a, a motion where they essentially, where they did actually support the position that if you cannot receive timely, in time, public health care, then you should be, must be allowed to purchase private health care uh, insurance in order to be covered uh, if you go to a private facility. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm, if I'm explaining that in, in a way everybody actually, can understand. It, it, it is actually, it was Canadian Medical, uh, it's Canadian Medical Association policy. And, and you know, it, this begs the question, why should the state, you know, the, the contracting out, sending patients um, to, to, um, to private facilities is great, but, but because they have, if they've got the capacity, but um, but why should the state have the right to decide we're going to send you to a private facility because because you waited too long and yet you are it's illegal to make that decision for yourself and um, to me I cannot understand no one can give me an argument for that now there are other myths out there like myths like oh the private sector will take away um, people you know doctors and nurses well. <clears throat> The reason that doctors and nurses are are burnt out in the public system because of the toxic environment that's there. there Canada actually has an above average number of nurses um, compared to the OECD countries, and um, but but they don't they're, they're not they're, they're burnt out. They're leaving. It's a, 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 as I say a toxic workplace. Uh, doctors are retiring early. And then the the other thing which I do support uh, also of Dr. Fontaine is that 
Canada needs to increase its number of doctors, and we need to have a pan-Canadian license. Um, we don't want 14 minutes. You know, Germany no, makes no uh, sense. has one Ministry of Health. We have 14, and you can imagine what that what that bureaucracy yeah. is. Turf wars. And then we've got blocks to, to 35 young Canadians have are at foreign medical schools right now, and we won't let we, we we've got barriers to stop them coming back because they use up the money of of, of the block funding. So one of the things the appeal court said is that the the um, that the government in, in in British Columbia, where they examined this, has made a decision to un the, the quote the, the, is they. The system in British Columbia, this is a direct quote from the BC Appeal Court, it's intentionally underdesigned in order to achieve fiscal sustainability. Well, and, and, and the, 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 this is uh, nonsense. So, I, you know, I, getting back to it, I think you, when, you, when you're not performing well mm-hmm. and you're ranked last... Don't you look at what the top-ranked yeah, do. countries should you do. do? You do, obviously. Oh, well, it should be obvious. By the way, uh, Dr. Day, you, you talked about the fact that other than Quebec, you can't buy um, private health insurance, individual health insurance in, in Canada. Switzerland, everyone has to buy it. It's the, it's the law. So, you know, we have we have one country going one way, the other country going the other way. Switzerland, you get a lot quicker attention. We had a call yesterday from an orthopedic um, veterinarian orthopedic surgeon, veterinarian. And he's waiting for a hip replacement. He's been waiting three years. And I asked him, how long would it take if I brought Rover in and Rover needed a hip replacement? He said, a week. Yeah. So. And, yeah. It's, and, you know, one of the things that's happened as part of the rash, you know, the, the decision to ration access, not only have we, so when I came to Canada and, many years ago, many decades ago. And Canada was fourth in the world in the number of doctors per population. Today, we rate 69th in doctors per population. We used to have one of the highest numbers of hospital beds internationally. We're now 31st in the developed world in the number of hospital beds. So things, uh, uh, this is all part of the explicit decision by governments to cap Healthcare, and the trouble is, we have this aging population, uh, especially the baby boomers, are starting to impact the health system, and it's you know it's it's imploding as we speak. I mean, COVID made it worse, but it was bad before before COVID, and even before COVID, we it was evident at our trial from that that thousands and thousands of patients were were developing and uh, cancers and heart you know the cancers were spreading the heart disease wasn't was accelerating and worsening and um, so this covid has made things worse and it's drawn more attention to it but it, okay. this was this was happening years ago is your case going to go to the supreme court yes it will yeah and and just to remind you the chowley case also lost at the provincial court yes it did and so, so we are we 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 think that that um, there is a fear among politicians, and there's a fear amongst judges. I think of of somehow addressing this sacred cow that we call, you know, a unique system. But to re, you know, just to repeat, we are ranked tenth out of ten in access and. 
Yeah. We also the argument. No, no, I I just wanted to say, because we only have a minute and a half here. We also have a situation where, and I don't want to focus on Ontario, you're in BC, but they're talking about forcing uh, uh, seniors who have been placed into a hospital because they couldn't get into an LTC, long-term care center. They're going to force them out of the hospitals or charge them as though they didn't have insurance and make them go to some place that is foreign to them, not even close to their to their homes and their families. This is not humane. This is not management. This is not the way you do things. And then you have uh, Mr. Singh uh, saying introducing private care into the public system cannot be allowed, and uh, Jack Mead Singh's usual argument is billionaires will become richer. Well, it's, I don't know. So in about, in about 35 seconds, Dr. Day, just wrap it up for us. What has to happen? Well, we, we just need to open, uh, look at the top countries, and, and learn from their uh, successes and um, and learn from our mistakes. And, uh, you know, and Mr. Singh, he went to a private school and, uh, you know, education, no one thinks, no one has thought of closing private schools in Canada. It, it makes no sense. Not, none of this makes any sense that we're the only country on the planet where it's unlawful to get private health insurance. Yeah, one more quick question. Which country would you point to for us to look at as uh, having a healthcare system that is working efficiently? Well, I think I think we can we have the advantage of learning from the best taking, you know, some uh, an author in Britain has written a book on the best health systems and we can pick where we can pick and choose which of the best so okay. countries like Switzerland, Singapore, uh, Germany, Holland, they all have um, elements that okay. we could learn from. It's a story that it just won't, well, it's got, got my attention from the second I saw it and I knew I had to speak with my guest, a customer dissatisfaction story of a car rental gone very badly wrong. Um, Giovanna Boniface of uh, Vancouver, Boniface Consulting, rented a Yukon Denali at Toronto Airport, Pearson Airport from Avis, and the developments that followed the return of the vehicle are off the scale. Giamana, thank you very much for joining us. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Um, back from our all of our travels, so uh, just um, arrived home late last night, so good to be back. <laughs> I just wanted to know if there were any aftershocks from this experience. <laughs> Well, um, I'm ha- we're you know we're really happy that this is um, resolved with Avis, you know, returning the overcharge um, uh, funds to us. But it's been, you know, it's just it's just been really um, it was really stressful during that time. So I'm gonna have a it will definitely have some repercussions in terms of how we um, arrange some of our travel going forward and, and our reliance on some of the fast, expedited, smooth kind of services that are offered. Well, let me ask you about what happened. And I also want to say thank you to Brent Richter of North Shore News. Brent put me in touch with you, wrote the initial story. So very much appreciate Brent doing that. So uh, renting vehicles for business is not something that's that's new to you. You do this fairly regularly, yes? That's right. That's right. So nothing particularly different about this rental of a Yukon Denali at Pearson Airport. No, in fact, I've rented. I've done this exact rental before, moving our daughter in last year when she started at um, uh, then formerly Ryerson University. Again, um, at the end of term, so in May of this year. So this was our third time doing this exact rental for the like exactly the same amount of time and the same 
the same reason, going back and forth between Toronto, Kitchener, and Toronto again. Okay, so that's not very far. I live in the area. I know you can do that drive in, well, you could do the, the, the triangle in a couple of hours. Um, how long did you have the Denali, and how long, how far do you think, how far do you think you drove? So we had it for just under, so we booked it for three days, so we turned it just under that, and you're right, but so between uh, Toronto and Kitchener, it's not that far, so it's about 100 and, uh, to my mother-in-law's house, it's about 115 kilometers, um, so in total, maybe 300 kilometers, and we had prepaid, I prepaid for 600, you know, just to be sure, uh, sure um, in case we needed to do a second trip, you know, in case we'd forgotten something of her, her move. So you drop off the vehicle, you've, you're done with it, you drop it off, it's a process that you've done before, and you then look at the bill or the statement that arrives from Avis. Please tell us what the numbers were. So um, I didn't, yeah, so when I dropped it off, we didn't look at it because it was express, right? I prepaid, so uh, mm-hmm. we looked at it on as we were getting ready to go onto our flight. And actually, I didn't, I didn't notice it first on the invoice. What I noticed was this an alert, like an $8,000 charge on my credit card, so which uh, pointed me to go and look at it. So I was, we were charged for 30, driving 36,482 kilometers over. So this is an overage charge. So that's over and above the 600 that was included in the rental. Um, and so during, during that period, and so my total bill was, was um, over $9,000. It was $9,171.5. Wow. Yeah. And the prepayment was already a lot, you know, renting a car for three days at $1,000, like the rates we've noticed have been quite high over the past several months. It's actually really hard to get a car. I don't know if you've tried renting a car. It's really hard to even get a, a large vehicle, let alone something that's um, sort of reasonably priced. Right. So they uh, they charged you uh, with taxes and everything else was over $9,000. And, right. and you think you drove about 300 kilometers. That sounds right to me. And yeah. uh, and you were billed for what thirty six thousand was it thirty six thousand clicks? That's right, thirty six thousand four hundred eighty two. Okay, so as Brent writes, uh, you would have had to maintain a speed of five hundred and thirty six point <laughs> five kilometers per hour, or one hundred and forty eight point eight meters per second, to go the distance that the bill from Avis claims that you did. It would be roughly the top speed, Brent writes, of the fastest drag racer and more significantly more than the 176 kilometers an hour your SUV was capable of. So now you, you have these numbers. They make absolute not, no sense. So you called the company, and I, I would imagine when you made the phone call, you thought this is going to be straightforward. Yeah, you know, I had the number at the bottom of the receipt, there's a number for the Toronto uh, the Toronto drop-off location, which is in the airport. And in fact, we had actually thought, you know what, let's just, I'm just going to walk over there. But we just did not have enough time. And it was pretty chaotic in the airport that day. So trying to figure out if we could actually get over to the counter and back and through all the lines also at the Avis counter. So we decided we just call. So, but it wasn't that straightforward. The Toronto number is on the bill. I called could not get through. Is this just like incessant ringing? Then my husband joined me in the calling. So we called for about 90 minutes straight without any luck getting through to the Toronto counter, which is when I found a 1-800 number and thought, you know, what am I, I just want to get something happening here before we um, um, start traveling for the work trip to Europe. Um, and that's when I had a couple of, you know, a couple of conversations, both were disconnected um, did not. I didn't have a 
like a customer file number or anything. Um, and I even called Visa because I could see the charge. Like Visa is the one that can't, like let me know there was a charge. And I even called Visa to see what they could do, but they couldn't do anything because it was like a whole like a pending charge. So I really had to wait. I just had to wait several days, and um, that's why I decided. It's like, well, what can what else can I do? I need to get Avis's attention, which is why I decided to go on Twitter. And you're right, you know, say, I'm so grateful to Brent for. Um, we follow each other on Twitter, and I was really grateful for him to contact me and ask if he could write a short piece on it. Um, not really sure what that would lead to, but um, I'm 100% certain that his article and then all the other people that have been calling and writing about it, that got Avis's attention. Because then they, then they came and found me, like a customer service um, ended up reaching out to me. Which I don't think would have happened the other way around if I had not gone this route. You called them you repeatedly for 90 minutes. You and your husband called and called and called. Couldn't get through. When you eventually got through, you talked to somebody. They hung up on you more than more than once. And as I yeah. understand it, right? Yeah, I was disconnected a couple of times. Not from the Toronto counter, from their like centralized 1-800 number, which is a really generic... I mean, I'm sure you've reached... Something like that. Right oh, yeah. There. Yeah. Like, oh, like yeah. This week. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so. It wasn't very great. Like, I was really quite disappointed. Uh, like, really, really crappy customer service. You know, like, they pride. Their their mission is to, you know, or their tagline is, is you know, car rental that's better. Their their vision and their mission is all is actually about providing an excellent and stress-free car rental experience, but this is far from that. So the car, the car rental itself was stress-free. It was the return. (laughs) (laughs) That was the problem. The rental was easy. It was the the return and the subsequent charges. So, so what are they doing for you? So they refund it. So they, um, uh, the the message that I received from a customer uh, service representative, an email was that they would refund the overcharge, which, was processed on Friday, so it, it was processed nine days after. So I'm really happy that that happened. I've seen some other stories where people are still fighting for their refunds from car rental companies. And then they offered me um, they offered me a, a two-day rental at some time in the future. At some time in the future. Well, yeah. I, <laughs> I haven't really looked. I haven't really looked at that closely because I don't like really what I need was what I wanted was that that. I needed to hold off my card for yes, I was traveling, course. right? So yeah. I was traveling for twelve days, and yeah. that was really a barrier. But um, yeah, well, it's, it is quite the story. And uh, Chris did some interesting math. He uh, he wrote, given the proper bridges being built, it would have been <laughs> enough for her, you, to drive from Toronto to visit her family in Cape Town, South Africa, and back, and still have a few thousand kilometers to spare. Or maybe you did those calculations. I can't I tell did- from. Yeah, I did that. I, that was my first tweet as I included that to what I found in the two calls I had with customer service is that it didn't feel like anybody really, ca- like either of the people I was speaking to really cared or got the, mm-hmm. really understood what that number was. And even for me, you know, I'm thinking, well, I don't put that many kilometers on my car in a whole year um, <laughs> at that rate. I don't know if other Canadians do either. No, um, I don't and think so. Then so. I thought, I'm going to try and make this real and use examples. So I have family in Cape Town, and I, could, I figured I could drive there and back, and, and I could even go back. The other one I did was I go from Vancouver to Brisbane, 
back to Vancouver, <laughs> and one more return trip to Brisbane and still have a little bit to spend. Oh, my so. goodness. And nobody got it. I mean, if somebody, you had called me, and I was working for the company, and you said, look, I got, just got built for 36,000 kilometers for three days. I wouldn't have hung up on you. I would have said, we have to fix this. <laughs> we have well, to fix this. Think. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, the customer service was not like, you know, those two, the two people I did speak to. I felt like I was really, really stressed out, and I couldn't, I couldn't have made it more clear to them how stressful it was. Um, I really needed this charge off the card. It could be, you know, in, like negatively impact my trip, right. and like just nothing, right? And so it took, it took putting it on Twitter, and it took Brent and uh, several other people to start calling for comment for Avis, I think, to to make that call to me. The accomplishments, the incredible heroism of Canadian Army Private Jess La Rochelle, 24 years of age, what he accomplished in Afghanistan on the 14th of October 2006. I said earlier, it's usually the uh, what we see in Hollywood movies um, with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone, except this was real. 24-year-old Canadian, seriously wounded, two of his fellow troopers dead. He battled insurgents alone, protecting the rest of his squad using two machine guns. One was a C6, which is a uh, machine gun, which is normally operated by two individuals, two men, two, two, uh, two soldiers. And um, he operated that alone along with a light machine gun. And uh, when, as I understand it, when Lieutenant General Omer Lavoie, uh, who's in charge, who's in command of the, of the Canadian forces in that battle, when he called in artillery support for his own troops... He had to alert the gunners that mere meters separated his Canadian soldiers from the insurgents he wanted hit. This is uh, October 14, 2006, is a date we all must be aware of, should be aware of. Private Jess LaRochelle is someone we need to be aware of and need to uh, properly acknowledge. He has received the military, the Star of Military Valor, the second highest decoration, uh, but he is, according to um, uh, Rick Hillier, the former chief of defense staff, General Hillier on this program, um, Jess LaRochelle should be considered for the for the Victoria Cross, and I, I understand that, and I know that General Lavoie feels the same way. Um, General Lavoie, thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate you coming on. A little bit of a trouble with the phones, but, but here we are. Yeah, good afternoon, Roy, and uh, again, thanks for having me on the show this afternoon, and thanks for all you do to support our troops. Uh, my honor, and we collectively, I'm sure the vast majority of my listeners across this country feel as strongly about our troops and our veterans as I do. So it's October 14, 2006, Royal Canadian Regiment, you were the battle group commander, and you were in that firefight that day. What was it, what was it like that day? Before the firefight starts, where were you expecting an attack? Well, you know, back at that time, I guess in uh, 06, we're still in the tail end of Operation Medusa, so I guess we were always expecting attack. That's, a, that's your job as a as a commander, sort of have a pessimistic view in terms of what the enemy is about to do. Um, and the morning started off, typically as every other morning, um, started off, uh, our headquarters, my battle group headquarters was, was deployed forward, of course, and every day we would head out to do... A, in Army terms, it's called battlefield circulation, which means nothing more than uh, getting outside the wire and, and visiting your positions, your defensive uh, strong points, uh, your commanders. So you have a face-to-face with your, your commanders who are out there. 
and probably just as important, if not more importantly, is so that your troops see that uh, you know, the, the guy who's in command of that battle group is out there with them, sharing the sort of same dangers and risks, and you talk with the troops at the same uh, at the same time. So that's how it started off um, when we got to the position where this occurred called uh, Strong Point Center. So how much time did you have to get set for defending your positions? I read the accounting in Legion magazine. It's a really well-written piece about uh, about what you faced, about what uh, Just La Rochelle did, uh, Private La Rochelle did. What were, you, uh, what, what were you facing and how much time did you have to prepare? Oh, I would say probably less than 30 seconds because the way it rolled out was I got to the position... Uh, with my, we call our tactical headquarters. So it's it's my armored vehicle and three armored three other armored vehicles, which includes my regimental sergeant major, uh, Chief War Officer Bobby Gerard, who sadly was killed uh, about a month later uh, in another ambush that we were that we'd encountered. And we were on the position probably about a half an hour or so. So, like I said, talked to the commanders, just checked that the defensive position is is, is rolling out how um, I wanted it and sit there and talk with the troops uh, at, the, at the same time. And just as we'd mounted up to into our vehicles to head to the next position, a threat warning came across the radio saying uh, that intelligence had picked up there, there was about a, there was an imminent threat of attack at that position. And then that coincided, I think, within seconds of getting the transmission uh, with this salvo of uh, RPGs, rocket-propelled rocket grenades, and um, enemy uh, small arms and machine gun fire onto the onto the position. So there was absolutely zero uh, zero warning uh, between the time they came across the radio and the time the um, the uh, enemy uh, rounds and ammunition started hitting us. And you had to call out uh, danger close to the artillery gunners, and that meant that uh, there were meters, just mere meters, separating the Canadians from uh, from the Taliban. Yeah. So so what happened was that. You know, almost instantaneously, I could hear on because as a commander, you're mo- you're monitoring several um, radio networks, and so I could hear across the company network, and that that company at the time that Just La Rochelle was in was in was Charles Company. That uh, immediately a contact report was coming across, and that contact report had indicated that there were two soldiers killed uh, on that first um, enemy assault, which was. Um, uh, Private Blake Williamson and Sergeant uh, Darcy Tedford, who had been in the armored vehicle sitting beside Jess's position. So I heard that, and of course, you know, I'm there with four Lab 3 armored vehicles, which are, are pretty heavily armed with, uh, you know, 25 millimeter cannon. So my initial reaction was, well, you know, we're going to support this platoon position, and I, and I ordered a counterattack. So I took my four vehicles. And we went into an attack position, and we um, waded into the enemy position with the 25 millimeters and, and the, our 7.62 machine, uh, 7, machine guns uh, firing. And then, uh, so that assisted the actions that Jess had taken in terms of his uh, immediate reaction to, to fire rockets and machine gun. And then we settled back into into firing position to continue to support the uh, the platoon. But it became apparent very quickly that the Taliban were behind these you know really thick mud walls, so the effectiveness of our, even our big cannons uh, was limited, so the only other alternative was to bring in a, uh, you know, it's a, it goes back to almost like Vimy, right, a rolling artillery barrage in behind the Taliban, 
and just sweep them up there and, and bring the artillery in as close as possible to, wow. to finish them off and, and, and neutralize them. And that's what you referred to, um, Roy, as, as danger close, which is simply, uh, you know, there's an algorithm there that, okay, within a certain distance, you don't bring artillery uh, to friendly troops. And if you do that, then you have to, one, have the authority of a commander, which I was, and two, you need to warn not just the gunners, but all your troops in that location and say, I'm bringing it in close, so, you know, batten down the hatches. Wow. Uh, and, and get under cover so you don't get hit by your, your own uh, by your own fire. General, this is amazing uh, uh, to know that you know this this went on on this day, October fourteen thousand six. Everybody in this country should know about this. So tell us, please, about Private Jess La Rochelle. I understand he hadn't been in Afghanistan very long when this battle began, and what was he facing? Tell us a bit about what he had to deal with and what you saw him do. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, and I'll be very honest, up to that point in time, you know, the battle group was uh, almost 1,500 soldiers strong. So, you know, I can't pretend that I knew every uh, every soldier in the in the battle group and knew very little of Jess uh, up to that point other than probably, you know, what the language you're shooting the shit with them uh, when it comes to, to visit the positions. But on that particular morning... Um, when that salvo had come in and the RPG specifically uh, had hit the antenna, I think, of the, the Lab 3 that um, Sergeant Tedford and, and Private Williamson were in and killed them, that's the instant where Jess, despite being wounded as well from that same RPG attack, um, you know, had the professionalism, the wherewithal, the tactical acumen, acumen and the courage to uh, arm and fire several uh, M72 rockets, which are a, a light sort of anti-tank rocket that uh, infantry soldiers carry, and that certainly broke the attack uh, of the Taliban because it's not something you want to have uh, as incoming incoming fire. And then once you know, after done that, and despite despite being wounded, then got onto his C6 machine gun, as you mentioned in your opening remarks, and then just started pouring down a a, a lethal. Uh, beaten zone of fire in, in the direction of where the Taliban were. So those combined actions, um, you know, certainly were, that was the immediate effect uh, of breaking that on, on the Taliban. And what was done after that, including the counterattack that we put in, was just sort of the, a supporting action. Yeah, I understand as well. Private La Rochelle was impacted by an RPG, as you said, badly wounded, broken back, uh, two fractured vertebrae in his neck, detached retina, blown right eardrum, and, uh, and and with all of that, he still fought with his machine gun and with the uh, with the M seventy two rocket launchers. He fought with all of that, and he st- and he exposed himself uh, to uh, to gunfire from the Taliban because he had to. He wanted to see where his fire was being directed. Just a, a, amazing. Yeah, yeah. I'm, what, 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 as you're watching this in the middle of a battle, what's going through your mind as you're watching this young man fight? Well, yeah, at, at that very instant, uh, you know, my thought was certainly we need to do everything we can do to support this platoon and to support him because he was in a very vulnerable, exposed position. And as you can imagine, if you're the enemy and you're receiving these this fire both from rocket and machine gun, guess what? You know, all of their uh, their fire is going to be concentrated uh, on him, which it which it was. So, you know, the immediate reaction is okay. We need to to put this counterattack in and and support him and the platoon. But, you know, after, after that, and, and it's the same, you know, there's countless of stories where, for me, the greatest pride, or my greatest pride in, in Afghanistan was watching soldiers like 
uh, Jesse Larachelle, and he stands out of uh, the foremost as, you know, despite the wounds, despite the danger, despite the risk, despite probably every sane nerve in your body saying, you know, you know, get the hell out of there. Uh, he stood there and he fought, and you know, and he stood there and fought, knowing that you know he was in, he was very vulnerable. He was great jeopardy, he was, and, and, you know, at great risk of of being further wounded um, or, or worse. Uh, but he just had that that courage uh, to continue to fight and and support the rest of his uh, his platoon. And nothing nothing in my experience in Afghanistan gave me greater pride as a you know both as a soldier, a leader, and, and as Canadian to see soldiers like Jess LaRochelle uh, do that. Wow! I also want to uh, ask you, General, to mention a book that was written by uh, uh, Jess LaRochelle's company, Sergeant Major, in just a moment. But would you please tell us, uh, in your words? What is it that makes Jessler Rochelle a, a candidate for the Canadian Victoria Cross? Yeah, no, absolutely right. So, I mean, you know, in his case, I signed off on his, when you, a soldier is written up for a valorous citation and it's put forward back to Ottawa, the commander signs off. So in that case, I signed it off and then, and I was sort of in the very fortunate position that not only am I signing it off, but I actually witnessed it firsthand. And that, Valor recommendation goes forward to Ottawa, but it's not. It's not. Go, it doesn't go forward for a specific award. So, as you recognize, those the Victoria Cross, which is our, our highest award for valor, then the Star of Military Valor, and then the Medal of Military Valor. So, it goes forward, and it's for Ottawa to decide um, which category it falls in. And when I signed off on his, and having seen it firsthand, um, I thought, well, this is certainly uh, a contender for. A Victoria Cross, which, as you know, has not been issued um, uh, to a Canadian soldier, sailor, or airman, for that matter, since World War II. We didn't issue any in um, in Korea, and we didn't issue any in Afghanistan, unlike our other Commonwealth uh, allies who also have the Victoria Cross. And if you look at that citation and you compare it to similar citations of Victoria Cross winners from either World War II or War One. It has all the it has all that key ingredients of what you expect to see at Victoria Cross. It's a soldier who is on the front clearly uh, in the presence of the enemy is wounded despite those wounds uh, continues to take action uh, and decisive action to bring the fight back to the enemy and to turn the tide and, and essentially um, win the uh, win the battle and certainly that you know characterizes everything uh, that Jess uh, Larachelle did. Uh, did that morning. A Canadian hero, October 14, 2006, a young Canadian hero, and he's still recovering from wounds he received at that particular battle, as I understand it. Um, General, that you also heard from uh, Jess LaRochelle's company sergeant major, uh, Chief Warrant Officer John Barnes, who wrote a book, uh, and I'd like you to share that with us, please. What, what's the book? Yeah, so, I mean, very coincidentally, as I mentioned to you earlier, I received an email from this morning, so... Uh, Chief Warrant Officer John Barnes was the, char- the uh, company sergeant major for Charles Company, which was the same company that Jeff LaRochelle was in. Um, he was wounded himself um, on the 3rd of September 2006 um, during the opening uh, attack of, uh, during Op Medusa, where, I also, where our battle group had also lost uh, four soldiers killed. And that morning of that attack in, on 3 September 2006, we were going against an objective that uh, NATO had assigned is called Objective Rugby, but what the soldiers um, familiarly uh, called the White School. It was a, a white schoolhouse uh, on the uh, 
on the um, north side of the uh, Argandab River. And uh, John was wounded that morning, uh, also by an RPG, um, as he was collecting the, the dead and wounded, what we call a casualty collection point. And the name of that book is aptly uh, called uh, White School Black Memories. And it's, you know, in, in a very nutshell, it's a bit of an account of John's career as a soldier in the, in the Canadian Armed Forces and in the Royal Canadian Regiment. But the focus really is on Afghanistan, and it really is then on, on John's um, fight uh, with post-traumatic stress disorder uh, as a result of his, uh, his time in Afghanistan. Howard Levitt, a joint employment lawyer, author of The Law of Dismissal in Canada. So, um, yeah, nationally prominent Canadians, as you know, signed a two-page letter carried in the Globe and Mail, challenging Bell for the removal of Lisa Leflam as CTV national news anchor, charging sexism and ageism. So uh, I was very interested to see that Howard wrote a piece in the National Post, and um, he responds to the CEO of Bell, stating it had nothing to do with age, nothing to do with gender, nothing to do with gray hair, and it's uh, they're going to have an, hold an investigation. And Mr. Levitt writes, does Bell Media really need to investigate? What facts are unknown to it? It made the decision to fire Laflamme, knows why it did it, knows whether it was tainted, as alleged, by her age or gender. If management at the highest level made the decision, there's nothing to investigate. If it was lower management, then higher management can call them on the carpet tomorrow and get the answers they need. And they do, uh, they can do so far more efficiently than some outside investigator with no powers, no knowledge of Bell Media's policies, culture, or personnel. Howard, thanks for joining us. How are you? Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for quoting a bit of my column in yesterday's post. I find it very interesting. So uh, why don't I just step aside and, and you fill us in on what you, what's, what's, the, what's the fundamentals of what you wrote in the post? Well, it's nonsense. Let's start with that, Roy. It's nonsense. And it's corporate nonsense at its most consistent these days. That's the crisis management position. It's textbook. Something's go wrong. You don't have a good explanation. So we're going to call an investigator. It makes it sound like you're actually doing something. What you're doing is kicking it down months into the future so everybody's forgotten about it. It looks like you've done something. You've done nothing because at the end of the day, first of all, your outside investigator is going to give you the report you need and want and ask for because they want more jobs. And so there's no real independence there. And who are they investigating? They're investigating the newsroom. That's not where the problem is. It's not the newsroom. It's management decisions. That's who should be investigated. So... It's all nonsense, and it's what some crisis management firm told them to do. Call for an investigator, which will find nothing, and hopefully nobody's going to put up with it. Because here's the story. There's a board of directors. There's real issues legally of corporate governance. Board of directors, in a way they didn't even five years ago, have a fiduciary duty to deal with real problems in their company. Well, this is a real problem. It's a national branding issue for Bell Media. And the board of directors should themselves get to the bottom of it. They should find out what's going on. And heads really should roll, and probably for cause. Because the law is, if someone does something willfully that damages the brand of a company, that could be cause for discharge. And if they did something illegal, if they fired her for age reasons, for gender reasons, that's a direct violation of a, of a statute, the Human Rights Code. So if the facts are that someone senior in Bell Management 
committed an illegal act which brought the whole company to disrepute, they not only should be fired, they should be fired for cause. And if the decisions are made in higher senior management, then maybe it goes above the CEOs to the board of directors who should be looking into this and showing they're doing something. And so far, we haven't heard a peep from them. Is the landscape changing when it comes to dismissals? Because I can't recall too many instances where the entire executive suite, those with the keys to the executive washrooms, have been held to account publicly. No, it doesn't happen very often, but the landscape is changing because more and more, uh, look, I just was at a seminar in the States on, with a bunch of uh, corporate counsel there in the U.S., and the law is not very different here. And it was all about director liability and corporate liability the high, at the highest levels. And shareholders will hold companies to account. Directors are ultimately responsible and beholden to the shareholders. And corporate government legislation, corporate government regulation, corporate government interest is becoming, I'll say, the rage, maybe even to excess. But you're right. They haven't done their job at holding senior executives to account very often. Sometimes the CEO has been fired for some dereliction, but never the whole group of them. How do you see this ending? <clears throat> well, the best ending would be bringing her back and admitting they made a big mistake. I don't see that happening, but that would be the smart move. If I were advising Bell, I'd say bring her back now and eat your humble pie, fire the people who are responsible, admit you're wrong, and get whatever goodwill you can garner back. Because not many companies will do that and have done that, and that will be seen as significant. But what's likely to happen? Well, Melling's head's already rolled. I don't, people who are suspended never come back. But it's not just Melling. Can't imagine it's just Melling. So more to come. More to come. Oh, I think, well, maybe there isn't more to come. Look, they're throwing Melling out as a bone, hoping that placates people. And if the story becomes old and people stop talking about it, then maybe they'll have been successful. But we saw that letter from... Yeah, that set fire to it. Yeah. That lit it up again. I know. You know, Jordan Peterson once told me a a message, actually a very important lesson. He said, unless you're really, really wrong, don't apologize. Because that that, that just admits you're weak, and then people will even be, be further emboldened in attacking you. So if you think you're right, don't apologize. Don't think that's the right public relations answer. It isn't. This whole issue of quiet quitting, it's quietly becoming more of a story, Howard. What does it mean to you as an employment lawyer? Because I've heard different definitions applied from doing no more work than is absolutely required to establishing a balance between work and private life. What is quiet quitting? Well, I understand, Roy, it means not doing any more work than is absolutely required and not a second after five o'clock or before 9 a.m. Whether you're whether the, you have a right to disconnect policy or not, whether you're emailed or not, you just don't answer. Those are your hours. They belong to the company and they don't, and they don't belong to you. But the problem is those who do that aren't going to get ahead. Right now, it's a great market for employees. As we know, it's tough to find employees if you're an employer in almost any field, but that's not going to last forever. If we have a recession coming up, as so many predict, it's going to be a very different marketplace. And all of a sudden, those employees who have quietly quit, two things will have happened. First of all, good luck getting a reference. 
your record follows you around, whether you think so or not, whether employers have official re- reference policies or not. The reality is people get jobs based on who they know and what people think about them. And people will find someone where they used to work and find out about them. And if they quietly quit, that person's going to be unemployable. And when there's layoffs, guess who's going to get laid off? It's quiet quitters. The second thing that happens this is something I found as an employer and from talking to clients who are employers, it's hard once you become lazy in your job to ever start working hard again. You can't just turn it on or off. Lazy employees don't ever become diligent, productive employees. You might think they can, but they don't ever. So that's a problem too. They develop bad habits and they can't retract from. Okay, so I'm I'm thinking this is a and everything I've read and, and heard leads me to this conclusion. It's a generational issue, Generation Z perhaps. I'm from or Z. I'm I'm from the work harder and get ahead generation. Working hard today and even harder tomorrow will augur well for my prospects the day after tomorrow. Now, I've been told, Howard, that I'm wasting valuable personal time and no employer is really going to appreciate the extra work outside what we're obliged to perform per our agreement with our employer. And if we change jobs, the extra work we did for the previous employer will not count for anything anyway. I don't believe that for a second. I've always worked a, I've always worked a lot longer, many hours on my own because I care about what I do and I, I think it's part of the deal. Well, first of all, you get enjoyment from it. Yeah. You get enjoyment from my work. You get yes. enjoyment from your work. Absolutely. I ask you, of course you do. And if you're into your work, if you're into the job, if you're thinking about it, if you're creative about it, you're going to find it enjoyable. If you're a quiet quitter, it's going to be boring as heck. I remember years ago yeah. being with friends who were older than I was. It was a city planner at the city of Toronto. I went to visit them at 4 o'clock. Everybody put their pens down, just stood there looking at the clock. i never seen anything like that in my life. At 4.30, I got up and walked out. Wow. Just looked at the clock for half an hour, the whole bunch of them in the city, wow. Toronto. And what kind of job satisfaction do they have? Zero. So, And you are taking your next job because the skills you're developing in yourself, you take to the next job with you as well as your reputation. Mm-hmm. So it's simply nonsense, that theory. And by the way, I have young people working for me who are great. I've had young people working for me who aren't so great. So it's not just generational. Okay. Now, you've also said your advice is if you're someone who's decided quiet quitting is the way to proceed, you should keep that decision itself quiet. (laughs) Yes, because if you talk about it, if people understand that that's what you're doing deliberately, it just affects your reputation. It's a little bit like don't put silly stuff on social media that a new employer one day down the line might look at it and say, I'm not hiring that person. It's that reputational impact. If you're going to do it, at least keep your mouth shut about it, because if it gets around, you're doing it deliberately. That's a form of misconduct. It's not misconduct that's cause for discharge, but it's certainly the sort of thing that's going to make an employer think, hey, I'm not hiring that person, your existing employer. I'm not going to keep that person when it's time for layoffs. Yeah, I have or a feeling. Or not going to get a promotion, for sure. Yeah, I just have a feeling that uh, some of what we're seeing here is uh, a postcard from the participation trophy world. You showed up, so you get a trophy. And uh, that's good enough. You showed up, it's good enough, because you're so special. You're not. Um, so, look, when it comes to an employer's options, uh, can quiet quitting be an acceptable reason for termination? Well, it depends what you mean by that, Roy. If you mean, is it cause... Well, you're the lawyer. You tell me. Fire? You know, well, I'm, I'm, I'm answering the question. Okay. 
proposing. If you mean, is it cause for discharge such that you can fire someone without a penny in severance, the answer is no. It's not legal cause because legal cause is serious misconduct, usually after warnings. Is it a good reason to fire someone? Of course it is. Of course it is. You may be fired just as of layoffs, and that's, of course, the quiet quitters are the first people who are going to go. But secondly, the employer may say, this job is not being done very well. I'm going to find someone who's better, even though we're not laying anyone off, even though we're hiring. We don't want that sort of person working here. Yeah. We want hustlers. We want people who are excited. That's our firm culture. That's what we want our firm culture to be. So even if there aren't layoffs, they may t- choose to terminate that person. It's also, do you want to work with someone who's just putting in right. minimum amount of time? Answer for me is, no, I've worked with broadcasters who uh, would come in and grab a newspaper, look at a story, go in and do a show after five minutes of looking at the story, and I always said to them, you must be really, really good. You must be so much better than me, because I can't do what you can do. Yes, good, good point. Who wants to work with those people? Not me. Not me either. Not many employers. Yeah. Employers are employers because they had the hustle to become employers, whether they're entrepreneurs that started a business or whether they rose in the management ranks. Did not rise the management ranks by being quiet quitters, and that's not who they want on their team. If you'll quit at one thing, you'll quit at everything. That's my view. Well, you've already quitted everything, probably, when you're a quiet quitter. I suppose. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.